We'll be reading from First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 20 and verse 58. The text is also printed in your bulletin on page 4, so you can read along if you'd like to. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect." No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he, but, he did not, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. realize I didn't introduce myself to you personally, which if you've been with us, you know I forget to do all the time, but now you don't care, so I'm not going to, no, I'm Duke, and my name is Duke, I'm the pastor here of this community, you can call me Duke, Pastor Duke, whatever you are comfortable with, and I'd love to get to know you, talk with you, whether you're here for the first time or tenth time or hundredth time, um, I love connecting with you and walking through life together with you as not only a pastor, but also as a neighbor. Uh, so would love some time with you if we don't know each other well. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a Q&A time, question and answer, right after the sermon and a song. And so if you have any thoughts that come to mind, any questions, any what did he mean there, or what is the Bible saying there kinds of thoughts, feel free to jot those down and ask them later on. Uh, we'd be happy to dialogue together as a community. Let's do this. Let's pray together first. God, we 
look to you in this time because we know we need your help. Uh, We know that understanding what you have for us today to understand the implications and the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it takes not just a mind, but also a heart. It takes not just squeezing our brains, but it takes your spirit. We need your help, God. So we pray that you'd be present and that every person here would hear from you and see of you in a unique way according to what they need in this time. You know each of our stories, our lives, our needs. God, please meet our needs and please bless your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine, can you imagine a life free of guilt? thinking about this question just this past week, reflecting on all the ways in which that idea just feels impossible to me personally, because of big things, because of little things in my life that make guilt fester. I have a weakness for snacking. I'm working on it, and I've started to put into place some rules for myself about the hour at which I'm allowed to eat and snack and how much I can consume and what I'm allowed to consume. And so, of course, as always, the other night in a moment of vulnerability, I find myself surrounded by wrappers of granola bars and nuts and these cute little tasty Hershey's chocolate Easter eggs. Who brought those into our home? I want to know. Surrounded by rappers and, of course, Paula helping to keep me accountable, always kind and generous. But I found myself suddenly, late at night, she was asleep, struck by this sense of, I have to hide the evidence. (laughs) And so carefully, I'm telling you, carefully placed it in the trash. And not just in the trash, but underneath another piece of trash. This is pitiful, isn't it? just to make sure that my wife wouldn't find the evidence, the guilt. Or reflecting again in this past week how much I know I tend to avoid making phone calls to people, friends, loved ones, when I don't feel like I've actually done enough for them. And so I avoid them because of that guilt. Or again, this last week, while Facebooking a friend who actually was from high school and getting reconnected with him, I was reminded as we were talking about a a class, a biology class that we shared together, I was reminded how much I actually lied and cheated all the way through that entire school year. I did. And I feel like I've dealt with a lot of that in my heart and before God. I feel free from it. And then I'm reminded that every so often I still have dreams of being in that school biology class. The haunting that's still there deep in my conscience. I thought I was okay, and yet it still keeps coming back. The guilt in our lives. Can you imagine a life free of guilt? And for some of us, that's kind of like asking, can you imagine a life free of oxygen, right? It's the the air we breathe. Maybe it's what you run off of, how much our lives can be guilt-based and guilt-motivated. 
maybe long ago or maybe not too long ago, you really messed up badly. And you just don't know if you'll ever find freedom from your sense of wrongdoing. Or maybe someone in your life helped you get this far in life. Gave you a helping hand or maybe helped you out financially. Maybe a parent, maybe a friend opened up opportunities for you. And so you're constantly feeling like you owe them something. Not just out of gratitude, but out of guilt. And it's what drives you. Maybe in your work, maybe in your schooling, maybe in your relationships. Maybe the ways in which we feel a constant sense of condemnation or failure. Maybe you always feel punished. Maybe you always feel like you're doing wrong, like you're not measuring up, like you're not doing enough. Maybe it feels like someone's keeping score out there and you don't know who it is, but just maybe it feels like someone is. You might not even believe in the idea of sin, yet deep inside you walk around living feeling like a sinner. We are all plagued by guilt, aren't we? We are all, more than we'd like to be, motivated by guilt, yanked around in our hearts by guilt, driving through life, looking in our rearview mirror, as it were. And it eats up our lives, doesn't it? Drains us of energy. Guilt makes us so petty, so small. We start to care about things like Hershey's chocolate wrappers. Rummaging through trash at midnight like a raccoon in an alleyway. This is what it does to our lives. It makes us so petty, so small, so self-centered. Because we do so much just to try to give ourselves relief. To make ourselves feel okay about ourselves. To get rid of the guilt. To be obsessed with getting rid of it. And we do do a lot, don't we? to try to cleanse our hearts and to avoid guilt or find relief in guilt. We do a lot of things, don't we? We try to wish the guilt away. Right? We tell ourselves, well, I do my my best to be a good person and I hope that that'll be good enough for God. I, I wish it'll be good enough for God. He'll forgive me. How do I know? I don't really know. But I'll just do my best and then hope for the best. Wish it away. Sometimes we try to compare it away. Compare it away. This is why we're always criticizing other people. We're always trying to put people down. We're always trying to prove to them, or maybe more importantly, to prove to ourselves that other people are worse than we are so that we can feel better about our junk and make the guilt go away just a little bit. Help me feel like I'm not doing so bad myself. Do you know that self-righteousness and even gossip can be major guilt coping mechanisms? I think it's why we're often so ruthlessly critical about leaders, about Hollywood movie stars, different people that are far away, but we want to pummel them because we're dealing with our own guilt, comparing it away. Sometimes we try to atone it away. Doing good for making up for my wrongs. Working it off, whether in my workplace or maybe even my volunteering. Maybe the guilt of of feeling like I lived a, a privileged life that I didn't deserve and 
So therefore, I'm, I'm pouring myself into people that I feel like are underprivileged and just motivated by that, that darker motivation. Trying to change people's lives, but really, it's all about me. Self-atonement. Or maybe we blame it away. Oftentimes, I do this a lot. Dealing with guilt by shifting blame onto other people. This thing that's wrong with me, this thing I do, it's not my fault. Who brought that candy into my house? Right? It's not my fault. It's your fault. I'm the victim here, so you can't really lay it on me. They did it to me. We try all of these things. We do it instinctually. We don't even know that we're doing it, wishing it away, comparing it away, atoning it away, blaming the guilt away. But we know at the end of the day, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, does it? Because the guilt runs deeper. It comes from a deeper place, doesn't it? The Bible tells us this, and yet I think we also know it deep in our hearts. We feel guilty because we are guilty. I mean, even if your personal standard in life is, I'll try really hard and do my best to be kind to other people, we know that we can't even live up to that standard. Because so often we're not kind to other people, and oftentimes I don't try my hardest, and I don't do my best to be kind. We can't even live up to that standard. And what if there really is a God, as the Bible says there is, who really has a much higher standard, the standard of perfect love, of perfect justice, of perfect relationship, a picture of a God that we really would want to be ruling over and governing and designing this universe because that's the very kind of life we all long for, right? You wouldn't want any other kind of God. And if he has that standard for life, wouldn't he hold it against you when you're failing it? We feel guilty, friends, because we are guilty. Our problem isn't just psychological or emotional. Our problem with guilt is real. But here's the good news of Easter, friends. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with this? And it's this, embracing the story, the message, the reality of Jesus Christ raised from the dead is the key, powerful, life-changing way to experience the freedom of a guilt-free life. Do you want it? Do you want it? Embracing the resurrection of Jesus is the only way to experience the freedom of a guilt-free life. That's a really bold statement, isn't it? This is what the passage we're looking at today tells us. 1 Corinthians 15, one of the densest and fullest treatments in all of the New Testament on the subject matter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul has written to this church in the city of Corinth, which was a major cosmopolitan city in ancient Greece, not too different from Washington, D.C., perhaps. And here specifically, he's responding to people that apparently have started to have questions about this story of Jesus' resurrection. Resurrection, coming back to life from the dead... 
I'm not so sure about that. In verse 12, Paul says, some of you are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. That sort of thing just doesn't happen. And maybe that's exactly the thought that's going through your head today. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Did you ever know, friend, that if you're full of skepticism or doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, that the Bible actually was written, this passage was written with a lot of empathy for a person like you, anticipating your question, your doubt. So Paul responds immediately in two ways. First, he says, look, the resurrection is an essential, non-compromisable ingredient of the Christian faith. It's part of the gospel, the good news of God's grace. In verses 3 and 4, he says, what I received, I passed on to you, church of Corinth, as of first important. Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He really did die. He really was physically dead and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's an essential ingredient to the gospel. But then in verses 12 to 20, Paul makes the same basic point, but by explaining what happens, what happens to the Christian faith if the resurrection of Jesus is removed What if we pluck it out from the mix of different Christian beliefs? What happens to the gospel, to the heart of the Christian faith? Well, if I can summarize what Paul says, this is what he says. If there's no resurrection, there's no gospel, which means good news, just tabloid news. If there's no resurrection, there's no faith, just fantasy. There's no truth in the Bible, just a bunch of liars. There's no future for anyone, just the finality of death. If there's no resurrection, there's no pat on the back for Christians, only pity for living such meaningless and pointless lives. And then one more, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, there's no forgiveness, just festering in guilt. It's what he says in verse 17. This incredibly provocative and powerful statement. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. If Jesus Christ hasn't been raised, I don't care what you say you believe or how long you feel like you've been a Christian or whether you're looking into the Christian faith and you're starting to get things. If Jesus was not raised, you are still in your sins, which means that you are still in the grip of the power of sin, the enslavement to guilt, the stuff we were talking about that drains us and kills us and makes us do crazy things to try to correct it and get relief from it. To be still in your sins means you're still in debt, still in debt, owing God for the price of all of our sins, still guilty, and still in need of forgiveness. 
Do you hear Paul's logic here, friends? If Jesus wasn't raised, your sins weren't paid. If Jesus wasn't raised, your sins weren't paid. Which is exactly what Jesus does when he dies on the cross as our human representative before God. That for all those who might elect him with love and trust and joy, saying, he's my man, he represents me before God, he stands in my place. That when he died on the cross and was forsaken, he was forsaken for my forgiveness. That when he was condemned, he took my condemnation. That when he took the wrath of hell upon himself on the cross, he took the judgment that I deserved. This is what it means when it says that Jesus died for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. But if Jesus wasn't raised, our sins weren't paid. Recently, Went over to Best Buy, also known by some as Paradise. Because I had to make a return. And make a return of a little piece of software that I bought from my mother-in-law, which of course her computer didn't need. So I had to trudge back to that customer service line. And then I started flipping through my wallet because I was looking for something in order to make that return. I was hoping I might be able to get away with it, just give the thing to them, and maybe they would just say, all right, we'll just take it back, and bloop, you know, we'll give you back that credit onto your credit card, that sort of thing. But then they asked me that dreaded question, do you have a receipt, sir? Still fumbling through my wallet, I said, yes, I'm pretty sure I do somewhere here. But suddenly I was getting afraid I wouldn't be able to make that receipt. Why? What is a receipt? It is proof that you paid. It's proof that you actually made that purchase there in that store. Thankfully, I found it. I handed over the receipt. They scanned it. They took the thing back because the receipt proved that I had indeed paid in full. Interestingly, right after that, I went around the corner to Best Buy and realized that I had in my hands a, a Sprite bottle that I had purchased from Best Buy on my way out. And I don't know about you, and maybe I just have this guilty conscience, maybe it was from a bad sort of experience with this shoplifting incident thing when I was a kid or whatever, but I always get nervous when I'm in stores with stuff coming in, wondering if people think I am taking it out. That sort of thing. So I'm here with my bottle of Sprite and I'm immediately starting to wonder, are they going to think I stole this thing because they sell that at Bed Bath & Beyond also? Or do I have what proves that I purchased this and paid in full already? Do I have my what? My receipt. My receipt. A receipt... You know, and sometimes they still do put down this red ink stamp on your receipt that says, what, paid in full. Do you understand, friends, in the resurrection, God stamped with his own promise and assurance, stamped across your moral record of wrong, if you've embraced Jesus, he has stamped paid in full. 
Because the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus paid all that needed to be paid and there was no more payment left to be paid. The resurrection was the receipt of God for the death of Jesus Christ. The resurrection tells us again and again that Jesus did in fact fast forward to future judgment day and pay the judgment in my place that I deserved. The resurrection is the receipt that says Jesus satisfied justice for me. Not because he had to, but simply because he wanted to freely by his grace. Simply because he loved me. Why? Because he loved me. Why? Because he loved you. And for no reason in you, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you begged him for it. He did it because you were even aware of your need for it. This is what the Bible calls grace. Paul talks about it in the beginning of this passage. It's a free gift if you'll just say thank you. And it goes straight into your account. Jesus' death, His payment for your sins, for your guilt, and His resurrection, God's receipt in your hand, offered to you for you to touch and feel and grab a hold of when you're not so sure your sins have been paid for. This is the power of the resurrection. In our lives. No other religion even dares to give you this kind of assurance. How do you know that you are forgiven? Maybe you've even said to yourself, I guess I just wish I would know for sure that I'm forgiven. I wish God would give me a sign. I wish God would do a miracle to tell me that I really am forgiven of my sins. Friends, He did. He did. A resurrection receipt in your hands. How do you know that you are forgiven of your guilt? How do you know? Is it just wishful thinking that you're banking on? Is it your good deeds that you're trying to make up for? Make up for your bad deeds with? Is it just this sense of, well, if I just try hard enough, maybe at the end of my life, God will just be okay with me? Or do you have what the Christian faith uniquely gives us, which is an assurance that's grounded in history? In history. This is what Paul talks about in the first part of this passage, and we'll wrap up in just a second. But it's why in verse 6 here, he talks about the way in which Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12 disciples and to 500 other people. And then he just lists person after person that actually saw him raised from the dead. Where he's inviting the people in the Corinthian church to go talk to people that really saw him, really touched him, saw him alive. Not because it's supposed to be easy to believe that anybody can raise from the dead. The Bible doesn't say that. It's not meant to be easy. Raised from the dead, duh, don't you believe? No. Paul says, go talk to people that saw this unbelievable thing. Go talk to them. It's why he says in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. It's Paul's way of saying they're still alive. If it didn't happen, you could actually refute it 
to their faces. If we were lying, there are people that could controvert the evidence. If Jesus' body was still in the tomb, we could point to it. He's giving historical evidence. And he says this stuff that we can talk about and point to and even touch is how you know that you are forgiven. The price has been paid. And I want to close with this thought. How radically would your life change if you started to believe that your guilt has been paid for? What in your life might actually start to change radically if you embraced this guilt-free guarantee? You might find yourself spending more time maybe with a roommate who's just been really hurting. Not because I feel so guilty and therefore I want to go and talk to my roommate, which makes it really all about me. Why do you do it? Because you look at the receipt. Your sins have been paid. Or maybe, maybe you just start to engage with a kid in the neighborhood, maybe mentoring them, or maybe tutoring him or her. But it's no longer now to quiet that nagging guilty voice or noise in your heart. For the first time, you're actually starting to serve the kid for him or her own sake, not for yours. Not to make yourself feel better about you. Oh, the self-centeredness that undercuts even the best of our service. But now suddenly you're doing it freely and joyfully and energetically caring for this kid. Why? Because you looked at the receipt and your sins have been paid. You suddenly start to realize that God is all at work around you. You see Him at work in the neighborhood, in your workplace, in people's lives, maybe even in your family's life. Your eyes start to open and you're energized. You start to see the fingerprints of God everywhere. You start to even have what you might call holy ambitions, grand ambitions for the world. What could this place be like if it was more of a reflection of the God that I'm coming to know? What could my block look like? What could my home look like? What could my own life look like? What could this person's life that I'm not getting along with, maybe even an enemy that I can't stand, what could his life, her life start to look like? You believe these things. You're energized by these things. You start to see these things. Why? Because you've looked at the receipt. Your sins have been paid. And you actually start wanting to be near to God. And you give up running from Him. You're no longer driven by guilt, keeping your distance from God. You actually start to believe, maybe, just maybe, He does love me. Maybe there is the possibility of relationship with Him. Maybe, just maybe, I can believe this. Why? Because I've looked at that receipt, the resurrection, and I can see and know my sins, my guilt have been paid. If Jesus was raised, my sins have been paid. Do you believe it? Have you received it? Are you touching that receipt today? Notice how Paul concludes this 1,200 word 
explanation of the resurrection, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at this over the next couple of weeks, five weeks actually, just digging in deep to this idea of resurrection and all of its implications for different areas of life. It's why I included verse 58, the grand conclusion after Paul goes after sentence, after proposition, after argument about the resurrection. And he says, therefore, what? We'll just sit back and relax. No. Therefore, what? Well, good thing you believe it. Just think about it a little bit more. No. Therefore, verse 58, stand firm. Be steadfast. Let nothing move you. Let your lives overflow with joyful labor and work in the Lord. Be active. Engage in the mission of God. If Jesus has been raised, live a full life that overflows with a life of joyful, humble, loving service to those around you and service to God. The resurrection triggers a revolution in our lives. That if we would just start to get what the Bible is saying in this passage, it starts to change everything. This crazy thing, which I know some of you still believe to be unbelievable, understandably so, that if we could get our minds around it and all that it means, and we're just scratching the surface today, we would see that the resurrection triggers nothing short of a grand revolution. What if Jesus' resurrection really is the beginning of the end of death itself? What if the resurrection really is the death of death? How might we start to live? What if God really has unleashed a power upon this world that's beginning to heal the wounds of the world? What if God really is bringing in a spirit of justice through His Son that He makes it possible to overturn things that resist Him in this world and in our society? What if God really is building into this life the world that He originally designed, a world of love and peace and justice and holiness? What if our futures were totally secure? What kind of risks would you start taking that maybe today you're not willing to take? What if even the smallest, little, physical, mundane things in life had eternal significance? How might you start living daily life and the details of life? And what we looked at today, what in life might radically change for you, for me, for our neighbors if our lives were no longer shrouded by guilt. Do you see the beginnings of a revolution? Is that putting it too strongly? This is what the resurrection invites us to. Come back over the next couple of weeks. Let's explore this together. But today, hold that receipt in your hand. Your sins have been paid. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you asking that you would continue to show us the implications of this message, this reality, this story of your resurrection from the dead. Renew our hope. Give us strength. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Let's all stand together. We've got a song we're going to sing just to meditate on this together. Because He lives, let's sing about our living Savior.